Father, remember your word to your servants in which you have made us hope. This is our comfort and our affliction that your promise gives us life. Your words have been our songs in the house of our sojourning. And so by your spirit and your word, please show us Christ now, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be considering together the Lord's Prayer and how it begins. So we want to look at Matthew chapter 6, and we'll read together the first 15 verses of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. So Matthew chapter 6, beginning our reading at verse 1, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, well, we are come to our study of the Lord's Prayer itself in our, in our treatment of the Catechism, reminding ourselves that this is the prayer that God has taught us that encapsulates everything that's necessary to pray for, uh, for body and for soul. And almost any time you read any explanation of the Lord's Prayer, anybody talks about the Lord's Prayer, uh, they, always, they always dissect it in the same way. That the Lord's Prayer begins with a sort of preface, Then it has six petitions, six things that are asked for, and then it has a conclusion. And so our our task today is to look at really the preface of the Lord's Prayer, to think about how we begin our prayer when we say, Our Father who art in heaven. Um, It's an important way that we begin our prayer, and we want to take time to to think about that. Uh, Last week we noted that our prayers always need to be directed to the one true God as the only one who can really answer prayer. Um, Question 117 of the Catechism puts it this way, we must pray to no other God than the one true God who has revealed himself to us in his word. And we talked about how you can only pray to that one true God through the one true mediator, 
between God and men, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other name by which we can come to the Lord. No other name given among men by which we can be saved. The Lord Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Um, And so we, we thought about some particular things about our prayer, but the way that Jesus teaches us to pray, to not heap up empty phrases, not heap up empty things, but speak those things that are important and crucial for God's people to remember every time they come to him in prayer. And it's very important that when we pray to our God, we are reminded that he is our father and that he is in heaven. Uh, That might sound very simple. And while it's simple to say, it's not at all simplistic to go before our God and to call him our father and to confess that he's in heaven before we begin our prayers. It's very important for us. It's very precious for us. It's not something always that was just as clear to God's people as it has become clear to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you look through the Old Testament, it was not all that common for Israel to refer to themselves as the children of God or God as their father in the same way it becomes prevalent in the New Testament to talk that way. They would think of themselves all as the children of God, and they would think of God being the father of the nation, the father of all Israel, but it's not really until Jesus comes into the world that they understand more fully the glory of that truth. It's not just that he's father of the people or father of the nation, but he's father of each of us individually, uh, that we can all individually go to God and call him our father. That was true in the Old Testament. They did that in the Old Testament. It becomes much clearer with the revelation of Jesus Christ, how the Lord is our Father. Um, And so we can read it, for example, in Isaiah 63, verse 16. For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. Or the song that Moses taught them to sing in Deuteronomy 32.6, Is he not your father who created you, who made you, and established you? Um, God was regarded as their father in the Old Testament, um, and that meant that they were his son, that Israel was his son. Um, And God talks about that in a precious way as well. Uh, When Moses is told to go deliver God's ultimatum to Pharaoh, Um, He says, in no uncertain terms, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Um, And Deuteronomy 14, verse 1, reminded God's people, you are the sons of the Lord your God. Um, That's always been a marvelous truth that God's people have clinged to, but it wasn't until Jesus came that we understood exactly how rich and how full that teaching is. And that's what Jesus is driving at by teaching God's people to pray this way, that we should always remember as we address God in prayer who God is for his people, Um, what our relationship with him is and what that means for our prayers right out of the gate, Uh, the importance of that, that knowledge. As one one commentator put it this way, Jesus proposes and commends to us a certain description of God to whom our prayer must always be directed. A description that explains to us the perfections of God that we ought especially to know and consider. Nothing accomplishes this more 
than remembering the goodness of God by which he means to bless us and his power to do it. Um, that, that praying our Father who art in heaven is a way for us to remind ourselves every time we pray of the greatness of our God, um, his undertaking to give us all that we need for body and soul as a faithful father, and also his ability to do it. Uh, and that's what we want to think about as we consider this, this preface to prayer that our Lord Jesus teaches us. The calling God our Father is the greatest reminder to us of his goodness. It's the greatest reminder to us of his goodness, to call God our Father. And it's the greatest reminder to us of his power and majesty to say, who art in heaven. Um, and so that's what it draws our attention to, the, the goodness of God and the power of God. And that's how we want to think about this petition as Jesus commands us to pray. Um, calling God our Father it reminds us of God's greatest goodness to us in that he's become our Father for Jesus' sake. Um, that's what's captured in question 120 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer what should be basic to our prayer. A childlike reverence and trust that through Christ, God has become our Father and will much less refuse to give us what we ask in faith than will our parents refuse us the things of this life. Now, the catechism here is drawing on other truths that we've confessed in the catechism as we've gone along. Um, the Catechism has already spent some time thinking about God as our Father. Um, when, when, we, when we unpack the, the, uh, the Apostles' Creed um, in the Catechism, one of the things we talk about is what does it mean when we confess that we have God the Father Almighty? Um, who, who is the Father? Well, He's eternally Father. He's been the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but He's also become our Father for the sake of Christ. That He's always been Christ's Father, He's eternal Father, but He's also our Father for Christ's sake. He's undertaken to care for us as His children. Uh, that was one of the glories after Jesus' resurrection, is how He told the, the women to report back to the disciples. What was the message they were to bring in John's Gospel? Well, we're, we're told that in John 20, verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Right? Something has happened. And the message is clear. I'm not just going to the God who is my Father. I'm going to the God who is your Father. I'm not just going to my God, I'm going to your God. Uh, that Jesus has affected something important by his resurrection, uh, that we have been adopted as the children of God, adopted into his family. It's one of the great doctrines in Scripture, is the doctrine of adoption. The way God talks about us being brought into his family. Um, and, and adoption is a, is a way you really become part of a family. That, that's the point that God makes. We're not, we're not second-class citizens in the family. We're not somehow, you know, children with an asterisk by it. It's just a way of saying there is one natural son of God, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there are all the children who become his by adoption because he wanted to make them his children. 
right? There's a, there's a sense in which that, that's not to be thought of as some kind of second-class status. In, in a sense, it communicates something of that love, right? This is, this is not the parent who's just a parent by virtue of blood or by the will of a father. This is a parent who's a parent by virtue of his own will creating children for himself. And that's the glory of how the Bible tells us to talk about this important idea of adoption, that we are the children that the father wanted, that the father purposed from before the foundation of the world to bring into his family and who sent Jesus into the world to make those sons and daughters, to bring them into his family, to affect that adoption that the father desired from before the foundation of the world. That's how John summarizes beautifully the work of Jesus in coming into the world. Um, In that wonderful preface or beginning of of John's gospel in verses 12 to 13, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Uh, We've been adopted. Um, Our adoption is reason to call out to God as Father. Paul talks about that in Romans 8. Verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Right, really members of the family, so really members of the family that we're just as much heirs as Christ is an heir. We are just as much inheritors of the kingdom of God as Christ is an inheritor. That's amazing to think about. That really brought in to the family of God. And and why are we brought into the family of God? Because of the great love with which the Father loved us. The adoption of the people of God is a testimony to the love of the Father. Again, God wants that clearly understood by his people. Right? Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Right? Being children of God is a testimony to the love of God. John makes that clear in 1 John 3.1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God? And so we are. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? It's a testimony to how much the Father loves us that he's adopted us into his family. Um, And that that love is worth spending some time meditating on. The the scriptures want us to understand the way the Father loves us. We we talked this morning that that Jesus is not like a drill instructor. Um, And the, the Father is not like an implacable miser either who is looking for a reason to be unhappy with his people, who is a stern or severe father. 
um, who, who's looking to find fault and is the kind of father that nothing you do is good enough or makes him happy. Right? That, that's sometimes how God is presented as father, that, that somehow he is, he is the just lawgiver and he's standing there you know, with his judge robes on and the only way you can get him to crack a smile is if Jesus comes and intercedes for you before the father. That, you know, the, the Father is just and Jesus is merciful and it's the love of Jesus that sort of cracks the heart of the Father. But that's exactly the wrong way to think about things. The Father is not like that. In fact, the Father is filled with love for His children. And when Jesus brings us into the presence of a Father, it's not into the presence of someone who's having trouble thinking about how He can love us. It's the Father who delights to love us. And the Jesus who comes and says, now your justice has been paid. There's nothing that stands between you and them and your love. There's now no reason not to love them. I've taken away all the reason not to love them. I've taken away all the reason for you to do justice to them. Now you can do what you want to do and just shower your love and your mercy on your people. It's a wonderful thing to come to a God who loves us, a Father who loves us. And God wants us to understand Him that way. Not to see Himself as see Him as some kind of cold, implacable God. But as a loving Father. Uh, that, that's why in, in Deuteronomy 32, He wanted Israel to understand how He surrounded them in their poor and pitiable state. Right? There's a great picture of God's love in Deuteronomy 32, uh, verses 9 through 12, where, where God says, But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them, on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. Right? Being a people alone in a howling waste, and the Lord coming to that people who were alone and encircling them and tenderly caring for them, watching over them, and being with them. And God says, you know, no other God did that for you. There was no one else who showed you that kind of love. It was just me. Um, when you were in the wilderness alone, it was I who came and cared for you and kept you as the apple of my eye. Right? A beautiful way of describing the love that God has for his people. Or think of the way Jesus gives us to understand it in the parable of the prodigal son. Right? Again, where, where God is being pictured to us as the father and the, and the prodigal son comes to himself after having spent all of his inheritance. Right? It, we have trouble realizing what an insult it would be to come to your father and say, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. I want you to give me my inheritance now. Like, and that is, you know, would be fairly insulting to do now. Um, but in that culture, it was one of the biggest insults you could have ever said to your father. I mean, it would be reason for your father to hate you and for everybody in the town to hate you. Um, just say, you know, what a rat of a kid to say this to his father. And that's what he's done. And now he's thinking about going back to his father after doing this wretched thing, really because he has no other choice. Um, and, he th- and he says to himself, you know, maybe if I go back and I make 
a full-throated confession and I offered sort of to sell myself into slavery. And maybe if I ransom myself for the sin of my soul, maybe then my father will take me back. And do you remember how Jesus describes the father seeing the prodigal son returning? Um, this, is, this is what he says in Luke 15. Um, he arose and came to his father in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And before the son can try to offer to sell himself into slavery, the father has already welcomed him back as a son. Um, And he ends by saying, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us celebrate for my son was dead as alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The same one who, as the older brother said, had devoured his inheritance with prostitutes. Uh, The father is now glad to see him back. And when he sees him a long way off, he feels compassion for him and he runs to him. Right? That's not a picture of a God who doesn't care. A God who doesn't love. A God who doesn't feel compassion for his children. Um, the Bible means us to understand the kind of love with which God has loved his people. Um, and if, if those images don't communicate it, he states it plainly in Jeremiah 31. Um, Jeremiah 31 verses 2 and 3 we read, Thus says the Lord, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. Um, And a Reformed theologian explaining that, that wonderful statement said this, The Father concentrates all the light and warmth of His affection, all the prodigious wealth of its resources, His endless capacity of delight upon the heart-to-heart union between the pious and Himself. And what God for His part brings into this union has a generosity, a sublime abandon, an absoluteness, that measured by human analogies, we can only designate as the highest and purest type of devotion. It is named love for this very reason, that God puts into it his heart and soul and mind and strength. It's an amazing thing to be called to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what, what is this theologian pointing out? Why does God call us to love him that way? Because that's how he loves us. With all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. That's a kind of love we can't really fathom. That's what God brings to this relationship with his children. Um, That's what makes, makes us confident that God will always continue his mercy and grace to his people. Because there's always a love behind it. Right, like we talked about this morning in Sunday school. How do we know that a bruised reed he won't break and a smoldering wick he won't put out? How can we be sure of that? Because we know our sin and we know how we fall short. How can we be sure that he'll never leave us or forsake us? It's because his love is behind the mercy he shows. It's always there. 
The same theologian goes on to say that God's grace and mercy will never cease because the fathomless tide of divine love rises irresistibly underneath it. And therefore we know it can never fail, but will prove at every point equal to our need. Isn't that a great image? The unfathomable tide of God's love rising beneath his grace and mercy that tells us that he will always be a loving God to his people. And that's the order that God tells us to think of things in. When we think of one of those most precious of verses in, in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Do you see the order in that? Right? We could almost say the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Therefore, his mercies never come to an end. Therefore, they're new every morning. Therefore, great is his faithfulness. Because his great love stands behind all of that. Um, And when we pray our Father in heaven, it should remind us that he loves us like that kind of Father. It's a reminder to us of just how much the Father loves us um, and has set his love on us that we should be called children of God. Um, We are really children of God, and so we can really pray our Father. Um, and we can be assured that he, because He loves us like that, He will answer our prayers. Right? A father who loves his children like that will always do for his children what needs, what needs to be done. Um, and that can be our assurance every time we come before our Father. Now, He's a good Father who loves us. And fathers who love their children know it's not good just to give your children everything they ask for. Right, that sometimes children ask parents for things that the parents know are not good for them. You know, I can remember being a teenager and saying, you know, hey, you know, all these guys are going to go out and we're going to be out all night long. And hey, can I go out and do that? There are going to be, you know, are there any parents supervising it? No, it'll be fine. We'll all behave. You know, and your parents are like, no, no, you're not going to do that. Um, and then you know, you rage as a teenager. How can you not let me? You know, because your, your parents are sitting there going, that's, that's no good for you. That's no good for you. Um, we have a father in heaven who knows what's best for his children. Um, and that's hard when we really want something or when we're really sure we need something. I mean, I see a lot of people chuckling who were teenagers at some point. And... Um, you know, remember that, you know, that kind of teenage, like, I need this. I can't believe you're saying, like, you know, I hate you. Um, you know, that kind of thing that teenagers do. And sometimes we do that because, you know, we were too young to know that we didn't really need that thing or our parents were really looking out for us. And, it, you know, with, with some age and perspective, we realize those were wise things. But there are things that we sometimes cry out to the Lord for and we say, Lord, I really do need this. I really don't think I can manage without this. I, I really think you have to grant this prayer or I don't see how I'm going to go on. Um, and the Lord knows when we do need something and when we just think we need something. And it can be hard when God says no to your prayer, but my grace is sufficient for you to help you endure the evil day and to stand. 
it's hard to make that confession that, a, that God as Father knows what's best for His children. Um, I'm always struck by, by that in Calvin's own life when he's writing to a friend after the death of his son. I talked a little bit about that this morning. That he lost a son in infancy and he's writing to one of his friends, Vire, in 1542. And he writes and says, you know, my, my wife got your wife's letter and she really appreciated it, but obviously it's been a very tough time and she hasn't been able to write back, but she's very thankful for your expressions of kindness, and this has been a very difficult time for, for both of us. And Calvin says something in that letter that I, that I find very remarkable. Um, th- this, is the, this is the great theologian, okay, thinking about uh, what's happened to him. He says this, The Lord has certainly afflicted us, has certainly inflicted a severe and bitter wound in the death of our infant son. But he is himself a father, and knows best what is good for his children. But here, here's how the great theologian deals with this loss. By something that simple as saying, you know, it's hard for me as a father, but I know that God is a father too. And he knows what's best for his children. Um, that, that's a great theological statement, very simply stated as father knows best. Um, and that's, that's hard for us sometimes in this life, to recognize that our Father knows best. Um, it doesn't mean that everything we, we go through in this life isn't going to hurt when we think we need something and God says no. Um, but it shows us that the pain is not purposeless, the pain is not, is not senseless or useless, that we have a Father in heaven who loves us with that great love. And so if he says no to our prayers, it has to be for a reason. And we have to trust that this God who has loved us so much that he sent us his Son, knows what's best for his children and is not going to withhold any good thing. Unless it's needful for us not to have it. And needful for us to learn some other kind of lesson. It's not because we're not loved. But like any good father knows, you can't give people everything they ask for without ending up with spoiled children. The part of being a good parent and a good father is to sometimes say, you don't actually need that. Um, And I know what's better for you. And it's far easier for us to, to deal with those situations and to deal with the heartache that comes when God says no to our prayer, um, if we know that he loves us. Um, And to know that even when he says no, oftentimes what he's really saying to us is not yet. Um, Not yet. Um, But certainly we want to keep that in mind. That God is our father and he loves us. And he loves us no matter how he answers our prayers. Um, He always loves us and he always has the power to do for us what needs being done. Um, That's what we remind ourselves of, that it's a great good thing to be able to confess that God is our Father. It's a great testimony to His power when we say, who art in heaven. It's important for us to think of God like a father, but the Catechism warns us about thinking of God too much like we think of an earthly father. Um, the, The Catechism is really helpful in that sense as well. That God has the power, even with the things he sends us that are not what we hope for in this world, that God has the power to turn them to our good, even when we can't see how they could be turned for good. Right? Sometimes when we're saying those prayers and saying, Lord, we, I need this right now. 
I need this. I can't go on without this. And we know that God does everything for our good and he'll turn every evil to our good. That's the promise that he has for his people. We sometimes have circumstances in life when we say, I don't see how you can turn this to good. Right? Even when we know that and confess that, it's still not easy for us to answer those questions. The, the first death I had in my congregation as a, as a new minister was a man who died and left behind a wife and two young children. And his wife would often say, like, you know, I know God has a purpose in this and I know that God can turn all things for our good. He has a purpose to work all these things out for good, but I don't see how he's going to work this out for any good. I know that that's true. I believe that it's true, but I have a tough time because I can't see how he's going to turn this into something good. And that's exactly at the point we need to be reminded. He's not like earthly fathers. He has a power beyond what we can think of or imagine. A power that even allows him to do impossible things. That actually makes things that are impossible easy for him. Um, and that, that's what question 121 is reminding us of. Why do we use the words, our Father who is in heaven? Because those words who is in heaven teach us not to think of God's heavenly majesty in an earthly way and to expect from his almighty power everything needed for body and soul. Um, God reminds us time and time again that he is not like we are. Sometimes he uses phrases and images that we're familiar with to help us understand better. He calls us a father because we know something of what fathers are. And so there's an analogy to the fatherhood of God and the fatherhood we know. But as with any analogy, you can't press it too far. Because God is greater than any earthly father. Um, God is greater. He is is beyond limit. Sometimes earthly fathers and earthly parents struggle because their powers are limited. Sometimes they they know what's good for a child, but they, they can't turn them away from the path they're on. Um, they can counsel, but they can't walk the path for them. They're, they're limited in power. They're limited in resources. They're limited in opportunities. You only have so long where your children are under your roof and kind of under your control. You know, there's limitations. There's limitations that God doesn't have. You know, we say, I can't make them walk that way. God can make them walk that way. You know, I, I, don't, I just don't have enough opportunity. He's got all the opportunities in the world. Um, he's got all the skill. He's got all the ability. And that's the glory about having a father who is in heaven. Who is above all earthly powers. Who is great in majesty and in power. Um, Psalm 135 verses 5 and 6, we're reminded, For I know that the Lord is great, and the Lord is a God above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Whatever He does, whatever He pleases, He does. That's not like an earthly father. That's a power far beyond any earthly parent has. Whatever God does, He pleases Whatever he pleases, he does. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was forced to recognize that with all of his power. He still had to come and say, 
you know, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion is an everlasting dominion and nobody can stay your hand or say to you, what have you done? God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He's a powerful God. Um, And that's good news for us because it means that he can do impossible things. I love the scene of, you know, Abraham and Sarah being told in their old age that they're going to have a, have a child. And Sarah's like, yeah, right. You know, she's hearing this through the tent and just starts laughing. It's just so preposterous. Um, and I love that because, you know, she does exactly what we do as sort of like little kids when we get caught doing something. Why are you laughing? I'm not laughing. <laughs> I wasn't laughing. Um, and, and, you know, the angel kind of presses in on her um, and he says, you know, why did Sarah laugh and say, indeed, I shall bear a child now, indeed, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Um, and the angel says, why did you laugh? And she says, no, I didn't. Says, but she did laugh. And why? Is anything too hard for God? Is anything too hard for God? That's something we can't conceive of is thinking of impossible things as being easy. That those questions that so plague us in terms of how can God possibly work good out of this? I know he promises that all things will work together for the purpose of those who love him and are called by him, but I can't see how he can do this. And what does he come and say? Is anything too hard for me? Why why would you doubt that I can do what I say I can do? I'm the God who resides in the heavens, who can do all that he pleases. Um, And that's our hope when we pray to this God. And that's why Abraham is commended for his faith. He didn't laugh at this point. He actually laughed earlier. Um, He didn't laugh here. And he's commended here for his faith. And that's, I think, what Paul is referencing in Romans 4 when he talks about the faith of Abraham. And when Paul says, you know, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Right, that's faith. That's the prayer of faith that says to the God who is in heaven, you can do all that you please. There's nothing that's too hard for you. And if you've promised to work good, even out of evil, you can do that too. That's what it means to have a God who is in the heavens and a Father who loves us. And He's promised to give us all that we need for body and soul. And so we have to believe that He's fully capable of doing all that He's promised because nothing is too hard for Him. Um, And should that really surprise us in the end? That the things we need for body and soul are within his scope to give us? He's already made us out of the dust of the earth and breathed into us life. And when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he worked in us by his spirit to bring us to life from the dead. Um, If he's already made us out of nothing 
and already brought us forth out of sin to be his own creatures, do we really think he's not going to care for the creation he's made? That that somehow is beyond him? No, and that's what Jesus wants us to do when we pray, our Father who art in heaven. To be reminded right away of the greatness of his love and the greatness of his power. And to pray to him with confidence. To be able to say, I believe that you're willing to do everything that I'm about to ask you because you are my Father. And because you're in heaven, I believe that you are able to do far more than all I ask or imagine. That breeds confidence before we start asking for the things we need. To know that God loves us and has the power to do everything that we need for body and soul. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how often we have prayed and addressed you in that way and how easy it is for us to forget the great love that's encapsulated in that prayer and the great testimony to your power that we make. Help to remind us when we pray that you are our Father for Christ's sake, that you love us as a good Father does, that you are willing to give us all things for our good so that we might be blessed. And so we pray that we would submit all of these things to your will that we pray for, knowing that you know best for for us what we need and be willing to submit ourselves to your wisdom and to remember that you are a mighty God who when we despair of, of hope and despair even of life, that you are the God who can raise the dead, um, who can bring all things to nothing and bring all things from nothing. And so help us in those moments to trust in your great power as the one who sits enthroned in the heavens and does all that he pleases. And to recognize the power that exists in coming to you in Jesus' name. So hear us for we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.